Everywhere I've been, people said, your sermons are okay, but we love your classes. <laughs> I don't know if that's a left-handed comment or compliment or what, but... Uh, it sounds familiar. I, Welcome back to another episode of Meet the Ministers. I'm your host, Ken McDonald, joined always by Alec Robinson. Hey, how you doing today? Doing well yourself? I'm doing well. Uh, beautiful snowy day, or actually snowed yesterday, but uh, it's beautiful up here in the mountains of Colorado, so yep. love to be out in it. We are here in uh, Conifer, Colorado, and this is the first church building I've ever taken an elevator elevator ride in to get into, <laughs> <Yeah>. so <laughs> that's always good. <laughs> we are so happy to announce that we have Mr. Wayne Berger with us today. He was baptized March 28, 1957, in Sandusky, Alabama. Mr. Berger entered into ministry in 1962 while attending Fried Hardeman. Wayne has been preaching at the Conifer Church of Christ for about 10 years, after he had been preaching at the Columbine Church of Christ for 21 years. Mr. Berger has been teaching at the Bear Valley Bible Institute for 30 years. Wayne has done mission work in Vanuatu, Solomon Island, South Africa, Tanzania, Nigeria, Zambia, and Kenya. Did I miss one? No, I think that I think you got them. Right. <laughs> you've, been, you've been everywhere. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mr. Berger, for taking our call, for meeting us today, and you know, and talking to us. We really, really appreciate it. Well, I feel honored that you uh, even want to talk to me. <laughs> of course, we do. <laughs> I appreciate it. I, I appreciate the young folks like you all, and and the technology you have, and what you do with that technology. I really believe that's the church of the present. And some of us who are older appreciate it, just don't know how to do it. And uh, we appreciate those of you coming along who do know how. Yeah. I think that's, that's the avenue that's yep. going to reach folks uh, your age. Yeah, I agree. Let's hop right in. How were you brought up? I grew up in the church. My mother was a member. Uh, my father was not. And uh, we were one of those deals of... When the church doors were open, we were there. Yep. And uh, she grew up in the church. Her father was one of the elders. And uh, so I just grew up with it all the time, all my life. Uh, just it was part of life. I didn't know anything else, really. Where was this at? It was in the area. You, you said I was baptized in Sandusky. That's true. Uh, the area of Birmingham, Alabama. We lived out in the country, but uh, people know where Birmingham is. They don't know where Sandusky is. And, Unless you live in Birmingham area. <laughs> and uh, uh, we were there. Uh, I was about 13 and uh, had grown up there all my life and uh, was baptized on a Wednesday night. And maybe a year or two later, uh, we lived in what is called Forestdale. And uh, we started to start the church in Hillview which is another little area there. And so I was in the church in Hillview. As I was growing up, those were the two churches, Sandusky and then Hillview. Uh, a church, significant church in Alabama is the Adamsville Church. Uh, Bobby Duncan was there, oh, many years, maybe 40 years. Uh, so folks know Adamsville. Uh, we were connected with Adamsville. In those days, you, all these little churches had uh, vacation Bible schools every summer, and you just work your way through all the churches. Uh, you might go to three or four or five different churches for vacation Bible school that summer. And uh, so you knew all the kids from everywhere and the preachers, and so you're connected with all these churches, although this is my home congregation. Yeah. What were some of the joys of growing up in Alabama? Well, uh, first off, the church was strong. And that, that was good. Uh, Alabama, uh, of course, at that time, uh, again, when I was like a teenager, Bear Bryant came to coach the University of Alabama. So uh, that was part of the joy. Uh, I read the other day uh, a coach in Georgia several years ago said, an atheist is somebody who doesn't believe in Bear Bryant. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, a lot of joys there in Alabama, just good people. Uh, the U.S. Steel Mill was there. My father worked in the U.S. Steel for 40 years. Uh, that was the livelihood of the whole thing of Birmingham, Alabama. I forgot, they had thousands of employees. And uh, so it, it was a good life, you know, 
Did you play football? No, I didn't. Well, I did a little bit ninth mm-hmm. grade. I didn't. I'm, I'm a real sports advocate. I do better at watching than playing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I have, through the years, been involved in athletics, uh, racquetball, golf, uh, basketball, stuff like this. But uh, I love sports. I just never did make that yeah. my real I call, I call golf hide-and-seek. The ball hides, and I have to find it. That's, that, you've got a good deal of it. I, I also say that uh, golf is a, uh, is a good illustration. Uh, you know, I only missed that drive down here about a h- half inch, uh, but it, it slashes over in the woods about 200 yards down the way. That's the way sin is. It starts out at just a little bit, and pretty soon it's way over there in another area. And you're yeah, in the woods, man. yeah. So um, <laughs> I, I see several uh, illustrations in golf. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. <laughs> so let's go back to your baptism. You said it was a Wednesday night. What convicted you to be baptized? I think just growing up in the church and understanding all of the aspects. And at that time, uh, Sandusky had a man, a preacher named Charles London, who was an excellent teacher, and uh, I I learned a lot from him, and a lot of his teaching principles I kind of incorporated into my teaching as I became a minister. Uh, But just understanding the whole situation, of course, being around it all my life. So you say he was your first mentor? Yes, I guess you would look at it that way. Uh, He was a good, good preacher, good teacher, and so I, I really learned a lot from him. How old were you at that time? I was, uh, let me see, 57, so it was 1957, so I would have been uh, 14 in May, and so I would have been late 13. And you said you went to Freed Hardeman. Yes. You think that that mentorship kind of guided you along that way? Oh, yes. Um, that preacher particularly did not go to Freed Hardeman. I think he went to Lipscomb. But when we started the church in Hillview, uh, the preacher we got was Carl Dugan, who had gone to Freed Hardeman. And so it came time for me to go to college. Uh, he uh, encouraged me to go to Freed. I, I was involved with him as we'd go out and knock doors and visit folks and have studies. And uh, one day he said, why don't you go into preaching? I said, well, I've thought about it, but I didn't know. He said, well, you ought to do that. Well, that's what it is. That was my senior year in high school. I had planned to be an engineer before then. had taken drafting and all those kind of science things and stuff like that. And my last semester in high school, I switched over, took typing, which was one of the best things I've done. <laughs> I know how to type. Uh, and uh, uh, began to make preparations. And, and, of course, because him being from Freed Hardeman, gone to Freed Hardeman, that's where I went. And that was a major importance. Uh, at that particular time, Freed Hartman was the preacher training school. Uh, that was before preacher training school started. I think the first preacher training school started in 63 or 64, something like that, with uh, the one, uh, can't think of it in Lubbock, uh, Sunset. Sunset. Uh, Bear Valley started in 65, and those were some of the early ones. But Freed Hartman was a Preacher training school. Uh, I think I'm accurate on these numbers. Uh, When I was there, there were about 500 students, uh, about 250 boys, 250 girls. 125 of the boys were preacher students. So it was strictly a, and they would put the Bible in you. A number of teachers influenced me, but particularly William Woodson. William Woodson was a scholar and uh, young, I don't know, I've counted up before, but I've, gotten, I've had, I don't know how many classes under William Woodson. And he would be the man that really was the next sort of real mentor uh, to get me going that direction. I, I loved his classes. We became close friends after I left. After, when I moved up here, we got William Woodson to come up and teach in our master's program at the Bear Valley Bible Institute. Uh, he stayed with us. Well, I mean, he stayed in fits with us and lived with us and didn't live with us, but we spent lots of time together after then. He, he was a great man. So taking a little step back, what were you doing in your home congregation before you went to Freed? Were you preaching then? Made a little bit. Probably preaching is really a generous word. <laughs> 
Quiet, Alec. Watch it. <laughs> I was making some talks, <laughs> and uh, and I uh, of course pray the Lord's Supper and prayers and uh, those kind of things. Uh, I've never been known for my song leading. I, they tried to help me, but I, I don't think they uh, were able to accomplish much. Just, just make a joyful noise, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I always appreciate that verse. Yeah. Uh, I, I tend to think I was tone deaf. I mean, uh, when the song leader would uh, hit the tuning fork, and give, I could never hit it. And, uh, he would just sit there and grin. <laughs> <laughs> but so I didn't do much song leading, but I uh, just like teenage boys should in congregation active. I attended men's business meetings and things like that. So I was involved. Yep. So then that was Fried Hardeman was your start of your preaching. Yes. A yep. uh, friend of mine who uh, I I was a year ahead of him in school. Uh, he came in. He was a roommate of mine. He is from Tiptonville, Tennessee. His name John Hall. Uh, and uh, he had been preaching a lot of little congregations there in Tennessee, and uh, he'd go back to Tiptonville, and he got me my first little place to preach uh, up near Tiptonville. Uh, I think it was Mount Zion was the name of the congregation, and uh, that was kind of the beginning, and then from then on, you just filled in. There were a lot of little congregations around Henderson, Tennessee at that time, and about all they did uh, really was give us young preachers a place to try to learn how to preach. Uh, and that, that's they probably did a lot of good that way because I, I don't know how much good we did for them, but they did a lot of good for us to just simply help us try to learn how to preach. Yeah. And they learned patience. That's right. <laughs> you said there you was know, 150 I, students, right? So you were all cycling through those churches? Yeah, it, it, all over. It's just around there. Uh, you know, you, some of them would drive good ways uh, to go preach, and uh, you usually preach for a congregation one or two Sundays a month, and so you might preach to two or three different congregations uh, in the area. I know one place I preached to was North Rienzi, Mississippi. Uh, I think it was maybe an hour and a half or two hours drive, and a little congregation there. little town, unfortunately, two churches, and uh, but uh, you just find places, and, and then you'd stay with them a year or two while you're in school, and uh, you got acquainted with them. Most of them were little churches of 20 to 30 folks, and uh, some of them had pot belly stoves in the middle of the building, and people would sit around the stoves, and uh, it just good old country buildings. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Country folks. <laughs> yep, there you go. <laughs> so where did you go from Fried Hardeman? Ironically, I started preaching in Michigan. Uh and the way that happened was this. Well, first off, let me say this. When I was at Freed Hardeman, it was only a two-year school, and you could go three years if you majored in Bible. Uh, and so when I left Freed Hardeman, I went to Abilene and finished up my degree. My third year at Freed Hardeman, John Clayton, who was kind of a brotherhood name, not always favorably spoken of, but uh, he did a lot to convince people there's a God. Uh, he lived in South Bend, Indiana, and they were having a campaign in uh, Three Rivers, Michigan, which is just over the line from South Bend, Indiana. And Dale Buckley, a teacher at Freed Hardeman, took some students to uh, theirs in March to conduct a campaign. And I sort of headed up the student part uh, at Freed, and we went up there, and their preacher was leaving uh, there, and so they asked me to come back and preach that summer while he was gone. And at the end of that summer, they asked me if I would uh, uh, go away and finish my schooling and then come back. They would hold the place for me. Somebody filled in for me for that year, and uh, that's what they did. Uh, ironically, uh, I came back there. Uh, $300 a month was my salary, uh, and I had to find my own house and utilities and stuff like that. So times have changed economically. Yeah. Uh, preachers year? are much better off now than they used to be. <laughs> what, what year was that in? That would have been in the summer. Uh, I preached there in the summer of 64, and then uh, the summer of 65, I moved back there to live. And, and, of course, when I came back, I had a wife. Uh, when I was there the summer before, I didn't have one. <laughs> How did that happen? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> At Abilene. In Abilene. That's where you met your wife. Where I met my wife. Uh, uh, she is, uh, knows, is, goes by Wheezy, 
W-E-E-Z-I-E. Her name really is Louise, but she's always called Louise. And I said, hey, no need changing it now. Let's just stick with the Louise. <laughs> and uh, she grew up in the church. Her father was an elder in the church in Hereford, Texas. And uh, uh, she had finished. She was her second year, and I was in my senior year. And uh, we married that August and uh, moved to Michigan, and that's well, where we started. How did you actually meet her? Another interesting story. <laughs> because uh, <clears throat> Freed Hardeman was not a four-year school, every year, uh, second and third-year students had to go somewhere to finish up. Well, all of them would go to Lipscomb. Well, the next year, everybody would go to Harding. Well, the next year, everybody would go to Abilene. Well, it happened to be this year, everybody went to Abilene. They were probably 20 to 30 to 40 of us out there that from Freed Hardeman. And uh, she came into the cafeteria one day with a girl from Freed Hardeman that I knew. Well, I hollered at that girl just to holler at her. And, <laughs> <laughs> and she came over and talked to me. And uh, when she went back, she said, oh, I should have introduced you. Y'all be good together. Uh, and so we did. We met uh, basically in November. And... Uh, the rest is history. We married in <laughs> August, and this August will be 57 years. Uh, so well, it might last. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just maybe. <laughs> yeah, congratulations. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. So now going back to that Michigan church, your first paid ministry, how long were you there for? Well, that's one of the mistakes I made uh, that young preachers make. Uh, I was there about a year and a half more. I only left because somebody a church offered me another job, and I, I had no reason to leave. I, there it was. I don't. Well, they want me, so I'll go over there. <laughs> yeah. uh, first off, in those years, preachers only stayed two or three years in a place, and uh, you know, looking back on it, that was a mistake I made. I should have stayed where I was, continued to go. We were baptizing folks. We were growing. No reason to leave. Youth and immaturity. Uh, somebody said that they, I saw on Facebook the other day. I'm old and wise because when I was young and stupid, God protected me. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah. And uh, so I stayed there only about a year and a half more. And I'd been there a summer, came back the next summer, and then stayed a full year and then on into August, October. Where'd you go from there? Rock Island, Illinois. Rock Island, Illinois. And this is an interesting thing. that not amount to anything, but it's interesting. Every time I moved, I changed states. For about seven years. Uh, and my smart aleck wife would quote uh, uh, Philippians 4 and say, I've learned whatever state there was to be content. And she'd name the seven states we lived in. <laughs> so, uh, but then we settled into Ashdown, Arkansas, and lived there 10 years and raised the kids and uh, then moved to Dallas area briefly three years, uh, and I had worked with the church at Columbine in a couple of campaigns, and Leo Richardson was the preacher, and uh, the congregation had always said, when Leo leaves, we want you to come be our preacher. Well, Leo's wife struggled with cancer three or four years and finally died, and he was ready to make a change, uh, get out of the area and all of that, and, and so they contacted me, and so I moved to uh, Columbine in January of 1990. Uh, and, of course, we've been here ever since in this area. So how many children did you have? We had two. Two children, a boy and a girl. Um, I'd have to stop and figure their ages. Born in 67 and 70, so you can figure it out from that. <laughs> Do the math. <laughs> They're in their 50s. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I can figure it out, but yeah. uh, that's the deal. <laughs> so were they out of the house when you came to Columbine? Yes. Okay. Uh, that's another interesting point. Uh, I... We have been without children in our home longer than we ever we had children at home. We've been without children in our home since 1988, I guess, or 89. So we've been without children over 30 years. You know. Right when but, Alec and I were born. Yeah. Pardon? Right around when Alec and I were born. Yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's what I usually say. I'm uh, not only older than you are, I'm older than your parents. <laughs> I was born in uh, 1943, so... I'll be 79 uh, in May. 
No, you don't look like it. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. But uh, you may need to go see an optometrist. Say, this is radio. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. I've got a face made for radio. Yeah. <laughs> there is a reason there's an elevator in this church. That's right. <laughs> uh, so came to Columbine. You preached there for 21 years. Mm-hmm. And then you went up to your, your Conifers. So now we're here. Yes, uh, that came about because... Um, Weezy and I, she grew up on a farm. I grew up out in the country. We always liked the country atmosphere. And so one day she said, would you be interested in looking at a place in the, uh, up in the mountains? She didn't think I would be because I got thousands of books and I had my basement as my office. And I mean, it was, you know, she didn't think I'd want to go. I said, yeah. And we looked, uh, and this was the third house we saw. And he said, okay, if we're going to move, this is it. It's a little house, uh, only a couple of bedrooms, not very big, got a, close to two acres, got a creek that runs through the front yard, just a neat little place. And so, so we moved up here in 04. So we've been here basically 17, 18 years. And uh, when I got up here, I began thinking, man, we need a church up this way. There had been a church in Evergreen. For those who don't know it, Conifer... Pine Junction, uh, Evergreen, they're all kind of in this little area here. There had been a church in Evergreen, and it uh, went totally liberal and finally closed up. And so there were already members living up here that uh, were driving into Denver, 30, 45 minutes to an hour. And uh, when I moved up here, I said, man, we need a church. So I contacted the members up here and said, would you be interested in starting a church? They said, yes. So I, uh, that's the way we got it started. I thought I was going to uh, uh, resign there and work at, uh, resign at Columbine and work at Conifer. Uh, I was working with Alex's father uh, at that time uh, at Columbine. But the Columbine elders did not want me to leave, so I didn't leave. And uh, we had a young Bear Valley student that worked with the congregation here and uh, he, he thought he was going to work with me or Will Hanstein, who was going to help start this congregation. Well, Will's, Will's wife at that time got very sick and was not able to work up here, and I wasn't able to come up here, uh, and, and so he took it on. It, it was sort of overwhelming to him as a young guy, but uh, after three years, he uh, decided to move, move back to California. He's from California, and... Uh, so the church called me and said, would you work with us? And I said, yes, I definitely will. Um, I, uh, I just felt like if I did not, the church might close up, and I felt like there needed to be a church up here. When I moved up here and began to see the need for a church, I, they were building a new Safeway store up here. And I got the, their demographics uh, for the store. And their demographics said that their primary draw audience was 44,000 people. And their second draw audience was 12,000 people. I said, if there's 56,000 folks close enough to buy groceries, there's 56,000 folks close enough to go to church. And so we started the church there. When you drive through, you don't see it. But there are over 70,000 people that live up this way within 15 minutes of drive. You just don't see them in all these mountains. But they're up here, and there needs to be a church. And then when you go west from here, the next church is two hours or, so, or more. Buena Vista. Uh, and so I just felt like we needed a church here. And so I, I decided to, to start one here. Yeah. One little funny incident with regard to that. Uh, one, of our de- one of our deacons at, Bar- at uh, Columbine it was John Haney. And uh, when I moved up here, I, I asked them and they said no. Uh, and so he has announced he was moving up here anyway. He was moved up here, so he's going to start working up here. The elder said, jokingly, I don't remember you asking permission to leave. <laughs> he said, well, Wayne asked you to turn him down, so I decided not to ask. <laughs> so, yeah, ask for forgiveness, not permission. Right? That's right. So you didn't do that. And so uh, he's still here in the congregation. But, so after three years, uh, it started, technically speaking, in the first Sunday of January of 07. We actually started meeting in the fall of 06 on Wednesday nights and then officially on Sunday morning of, of 07. 
And then I started officially with them January for in 11. So going back a few years, when did you start teaching at Bear Valley and why? I began teaching there in 1991. I moved to January. I moved to Columbine in January of 90. And uh, I contacted, uh, oh, maybe in 91, um, sometime there. I contacted the school. Dick Case was the director at that time. And said, I probably everybody around here wants to teach at Bear Valley, but I'll let you know I'd like to teach there. And if you ever need a, uh, somebody, I'd, I'd like to teach. Didn't think anything about it. Uh, later on, Dick Brandt, who had been teaching at Bear Valley for a number of years, moved with Alex's father, or actually moved up there ahead of time, uh, to Prince Rupert. Uh, and uh, he left the school, and so they contacted me to teach in Dick's place, particularly personal evangelism. And at that time, it was a three-year school, and they had two courses in personal evangelism. So I began teaching that uh, course, those two courses, and then gradually they'd just say, how about teaching this, and how about teaching this? And uh, so basically I went 100% with them. I was 100% with Columbine, I don't know how you do both of them, but I did. <laughs> you don't sleep. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so uh, that's the way it got started. Uh, Dick Brandt left, and I took his place. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, I've heard that Bear Valley is really easy, and so teaching it must be simple as well. It right? is very simple, <laughs> okay. you know. It's nothing to it, you know. It's just <laughs> <laughs> but, what, yeah, what, what, what convicted you to want to, to teach at Bear Valley? Was it just... You heard of the school and you wanted to, to be a part of it, or, or, or what kind of was pulling you in that direction? Good question. Um, everywhere I've been, people said, your sermons are okay, but we love your classes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a left-handed comment or compliment or what, but... Uh, it sounds familiar. I, I, I've always uh, enjoyed teaching and felt like I could teach, and people learned and appreciated the teaching. And, and through the years, uh, they would say, you need to be teaching at a preacher training school somewhere. And the Lord opened the door, and I was able to go through it. And I've thoroughly enjoyed it, love it, and it's uh, good work, and uh, I just like it. And I still, of course, teach there. <laughs> so trying to go unpack all this mission work, when did you start doing that? Good, good question. Uh, I've always had a heart for mission work. Uh, I've also wondered if God was going to hold me accountable for not living as a missionary. I, uh, I've never lived overseas, but I've taken, I don't know how many, dozens and dozens and dozens of short-term mission trips. My first one actually was in 1963 when I went with a group to Montreal, Canada. Uh, that was an interesting trip. Uh, we left from Memphis, Tennessee in a car caravan of like five or six cars and drove to Montreal, Canada, through New York City and through all of these things. Yeah. So that was quite a trip. Uh, that was my first one. Then in uh, 74, uh, I went to Zambia, Africa with Leo Richardson. In 73, Royal Lanier Jr. and Leo Richardson went to work with Ed Cruikshank in Zambia. The next year they were going, and Roy couldn't go. So Leo called me and said, you are going with me to Africa. Get your passport, and let's go to Zambia. And then I didn't really do much more. Uh, I did become acquainted with Ed Cruikshank, who uh, had been in mission work for 70 years or so, and uh, stayed in contact with him. I knew of him before I went over there. Uh, and then I started going over, uh, working with him. I really did not do much mission work like that until starting in 1992. Um, what happened was this. Uh, I went to Zambia and worked with him. Then in about 1977, uh, Ed had married a Zambian woman, and the country was going communist, and so they needed to come to the states to uh, so to get her American, uh, U.S. citizenship. 
So because she could have been drafted, she could have been, I mean, a lot of things. So they came to the States, and they were in the States two or three years. Well, uh, during some of this time, um, a college roommate, my same college roommate that I said got me that first preaching place, had become a missionary in Vanuatu, and he moved over there, and things had changed. Uh, He couldn't get schooling for his kids, just had trouble. So he only stayed a year uh, and came back. Uh, The church in Ashton, Arkansas had supported him, and uh, we took that work over and decided to find a missionary to go take his place. Well, Ed was in the States at that time, so I contacted Ed and said, we want to send you to Vanuatu. He said, no, send me back to Africa. No, we want to send you to Vanuatu. (laughs) So we sent him to Vanuatu, and uh, he and I went over there in uh, February of 1980. And actually at that time, it was called New Hebrides. And they got their independence in July of 1980. So he and I took a trip over there uh, while John was still there to see if Ed could live there and all. He said, yeah, we'll do it. So he moved over there, and he worked in the South Pacific for 15 years. And I worked with him taking short-term mission trips uh, into Vanuatu and the other Pacific Islands. Uh, basically, I said, uh, mostly in, starting in 92. And, and I, one day I figured up, I think I have taken 50 teenagers or young people over there to, and I tell them, if you don't teach or preach anything, it's worth you going over there just to see how the other world lives. Yep. And uh, Alex was one of them who went with yeah, us. Yeah, I was present. I, I have a funny story of that. We, we talked about it before we turned the mics on, but uh, we were sitting there at the church building, you could, if you could call it a church building, there in Vanuatu, and uh, they had no roof at the time. It was just the cinder block walls, and you were teaching a class on Acts, and the reason why I remember it was Acts is because my Bible says the water stains because it was pouring rain <laughs> while you're teaching. And, you know, we're hovering over our Bibles trying not to get them soaking wet while you're up there trying to teach. And we're flipping through and it's raining and there's no roof. And it's like, what are we doing? <laughs> but it's a vivid memory of mine. And it's I always remember it because of those water stains in my, in my book of Acts, you yeah. know, in my Bible. So uh, I told this before we came on air. I got a team... There was a team, there was a group of folks came to Vanuatu, excuse me, came to Bear Valley with the idea of doing mission work somewhere. And uh, I said, hey, when you find out you're at mission work, let me show you the South Pacific. We had a South Pacific uh, seminar day at uh, Columbine. Uh, we had all kinds of displays. My wife and I had gone over there, and she films everything. So she had these films running on these televisions of what was going there. And so they said, yeah, we'll go over there and look at it. So I took them over there. They moved over there. And uh, that's the team that was there when we were there. Yep. And we'd keep going back and uh, working with them. And uh, in connection with that same church building at that same time, I think a day or so later, they were spreading some tarps on top of it to try to protect us from the rain. And uh, this one missionary looked down at me and said, this is a course you forgot to teach us at Bear Valley. (laughs) (laughs) Roof tarping. Roof tarping. (laughs) And so so I was in and out of there for a number of years. Uh, I also at the same time began going in and out of uh, Zambia. And uh, also in uh, 2001, I went with the Crookshanks, Wheezy, my wife and I went with the Crookshank and his wife, uh, Lena, to Zambia and to Malawi to see if they would move back to the Africa. He, had, he moved to Africa in 1961 and was there until 77. Left, was here in the States a couple of years, and then in 1980, we sent him to Vanuatu. He worked in the South Pacific for a number of years, uh, came back and worked for Truth uh, Truth for Today. No, I get the com- There's a series of commentaries on Truth for Today. That's not it. Uh, world, world Truth or something. I've forgotten the name of it now. It was an organization that did a lot of world mission work. And he did their paint, uh, printing, and he did their campaign leading work. 
Uh, and so then he got ready to go back. He was with him seven years. And then he got ready to go back to uh, Africa. And uh, his wife and Weezy and I and a couple of Bear Valley guys went with him to Malawi to see if he wanted to move over there. And uh, he did. He moved over there in 03. And he began something called a mobile Bible school. And uh, what it was, uh, he'd bring in a teacher for a month. And they'd teach a book uh, of a Bible or some topic. And you would go to a village on Monday, and you'd go back to the same village every Monday for a month. You'd go to another village on Tuesday. We kept Wednesday open in case there's some reason we had to cancel and we would uh, fill in on that day. And then on Saturday, we had a class also there in the town where he lived. And uh, you'd cover uh, a, a subject. The teacher would send over his notes uh, to, for that class, and they would be translated and put into a book form. Uh, and anybody who attended all the sessions that month would be given one of those books. And it was a four-year class, uh, school. It operated from uh, May until October. Uh, that was their time, uh, kind of crops laid by. They didn't have to farm their crops so they could come and assemble. Uh, and I taught over there four or five years that way, teaching a month at a time. He didn't know what would happen. Uh, well, back up a little bit. Malawi has always been very receptive to the gospel. There are more Christians per capita in Malawi than in any country in the world. When he got there, he realized, I don't need to evangelize. I need to educate. Uh, they didn't have preachers. Uh, the men did the preaching, and they didn't know any Bible. Uh, they knew the, how to obey the gospel, and they knew facts about the church. And that's about it. So he devised this program called Mobile Bible School, where he had go around an area and tr trained them. He did, said, I don't know. When I started, I didn't know if I'd get 25 or 30, that'd be fine. Well, as it turned out, that thing grew, and you'd have, uh, I'd teach about 1,000 people a week. Wow. Uh, it was unbelievable. And uh, I know uh, my sister went with me one year, a couple of years, and she would teach the kids. Uh, I say 1,000, maybe back up. Uh, taught 750. She had 250 kids in her class that, that month. Uh, so we taught 1,000 together. But we have 750 folks that come, and nearly all of them came all the time. And what we, we'd go to a place, and I'd start teaching at 9 o'clock and teach till 1 o'clock. And then we'd drive back an hour or two hours back to the house. Next day, we'd go to another place and do the same thing. And uh, that went on four years. And uh, the churches all over there were growing. Uh, the members had said, hey, our men know what to say. They're, they're preaching <laughs> it's, it's <getting> better. <laughs> preaching survival. Yeah. You should just kind of tell experiences and whatever sure, happened sure. to them and mm -hmm. things like this. Well, now they were teaching the Bible. Uh, they were averaging. He knew he was acquainted with about 300 churches. They were averaging baptizing about 3,000 people a year wow. all those years. Uh, and so it was really a good work, and I, I really enjoyed it, uh, teaching. Plus, when the four years were over, that's 24 courses that have been taught, and the, the meet people would have booklets on those 24 courses that they could refer to. And so, uh, I don't know, I taught lots of different courses over there, and, and of course, I'm just one. I, we had six different men who'd come in for a month at a time, and so... It was a good thing, and they, they had 24 volumes of books where yeah. they normally wouldn't have any. Yeah. And, and where can I get my hands on some of that? That <laughs> yeah, sounds like some good material. It is. It is <laughs> it's really is some good material. What, uh, what is the native tongue? Uh, let me see. Zambia was Chichewa. No, maybe it's Chichewa. They have a di own dialect. I've forgotten. Mm -hmm. And do you, do you speak was, it? I taught through a translator. Okay. To a that's what I was, I was getting to. Is yeah, yeah, and and again, that's again, and show how little it is, and yet how valuable it is. I teach four hours a day through a translator, so that's two hours a day. Uh, but two hours every day, and you know, you soon cover some material. Yeah. yeah. 
what is your fondest memory of all your mission work? Like you have that, you look back on all these different places you've been, all these different trips. What's the one that just pops up that that was good? Boy, that is a very good question. <laughs> um, man, I don't know. Going out into the villages, because when I wasn't teaching in these kind of schools, I really would just go out into the villages and teach. Um, my first... What country? Okay, uh, in several different countries okay. I do this. Okay. Uh, Bear Valley now has 50 schools scattered around the world. And for a number of years, I've been going to those schools and teaching. The first time I did that, and I don't know what I had to think about what year that was, I went to Tanzania, and I went with Roger Shepard, and we taught, the, there's a preacher training school there. It's Andrew Connolly's School of Preaching. I would teach in the morning, and he would teach in the afternoons. So I'd teach in the morning. I'd eat lunch, change clothes. I'd get a translator, and we would walk through the villages studying with people. Uh, that, those two weeks, I conducted 26 one-on-one studies, and six people were baptized. That's just village life, you know, and, and they're receptive. You just need to show them the scriptures and it, that's very rewarding. Uh, it is rewarding to uh, teach a number of these teachers who now teach in our schools that are over there uh, to know that you had a little part in training them. Uh, and I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but uh, I taught in the Tanzania school and there are a lot of Kenyan students uh, who had come to that school. Kenyans were always great students. First off, English was their native language. That was their official language. So they were, understood English, and you'd teach through English. You didn't have to teach through a translator. Well, I taught over there a couple of times, and there's one teacher, one student, I remember one day, he kind of threw his pencil down about something I'd said, backed off, and he said, I don't know anything about the Bible. When he really did, he was a brilliant guy. But he was just learning things that he had ever seen before in the scriptures. Well, he went back to Kenya, and a number of the uh, churches in Kenya had gone liberal. So he got together a few young preacher men and began teaching them in his own village, in his kind of hut. And then ultimately, I don't know the total stories how we got together, but finally we made it into an official Bear Valley school. And one of the things he said, uh, we have a director over each school. And Mike Reese, uh, who preached in, I think, West Virginia, is the director of that school. Uh, Charles Ogutu is this man's name. And he told Mike Reese, he said, I'd like for you to find Wayne Berger and send him over here. Uh, he, uh, I had taught him the book of Revelation and the scheme of redemption. And he said, I want him to come over here and teach in this school. And uh, so that was a real honor to me that I had made such an impression that he said, hey, go find that guy and have him come over to my school. And uh, so I've been going over there every other year for a number of years. I didn't get to go last year because of COVID. I'm supposed to go this year in the last part of May, teach the first week in June. Of course, that's all depending upon what the government says and what kind of regulations. And yeah. Hopefully so, we can, but we don't know. You've been doing that for... How many years? Well, I've been making those missions. Uh, I don't know how many years. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to do some math in my head, and I figured just ask you. <laughs> um, I've been doing that basically 20 years or more, more, yeah. 25, 30 years. That's what I said. I'd have to go back and count up. I don't know how many mission trips I've made. Most of them were a month long because I felt like if you're going that far and spending that much money, you may as well do all you can while you're there. And so most of all the trips that I have made are used to be a month long. And I can say this, I appreciate uh, particularly the Columbine congregation. They let me go on these mission trips all uh, every summer. I'd be gone a month at a time, and uh, I appreciate them doing that. And that was their way of doing mission work, uh, by allowing me to go to these places and teach. And yeah. as I said, I've taught in those schools in Nigeria, uh, Tanzania, Kenya, uh, Malawi, Zambia. Yeah. Just, and, and, uh, 
sometimes these short-term, if you want to call them short-term missions, get a get a bad rap. Would you say that they are they're beneficial? These short-term missions beneficial for for not only you but also for the people that you're going to see because I, I find great benefit in them. But some people are like, well, if you're going to do it, go all in or, or don't do it at all. Or va- vacation. You're just going over there on yes, a vacation. Yeah. Well, I, I sometimes come back and tell them the other side of the vacation. <laughs> you know, wading through mud up over your shoe tops for several miles to get into a village or some things like this. I think they're very valuable. I think they're valuable for the people, person who goes. I have taken, as I said, I think I counted like 50 folks from various times. It's a good experience for them. It's, we Americans tend to believe the world lives like Americans. We're the oddballs. Yeah, Everybody yeah. else lives differently. And it's good for our people to see those things. I've had teens say, it changed my view. It changed my view of life. It changed my view of a lot of things. And I think it is also good for the local congregation that sends the guy. Uh, it's their way of doing mission work. Maybe they cannot support a missionary. But if they send their preacher on a week or two or three or uh, four weeks, well, they're doing mission work. And so I think it's tremendously valuable. Well, on top of that, then you have, you know, people in the congregation that have to step up and grow as well. That's true. And um, they sometimes you can get those folks to go with you. And those folks get an experience uh, that they haven't had before. Uh, another factor in all of this, the greatest challenge a missionary has is raising funds to go. And usually his greatest challenge in getting to speak in a congregation is getting past the local preacher. Local preachers, that's their flock, not literally, but that's in their mind. That's their money. That's their people, and they don't want somebody coming in taking part of their money. If we can train preachers and members to have the concept, let's hear everybody we can hear. It does not hurt the local work. It helps the local work. It'll help them financially. And so the more people who can be exposed to short-term mission trips, the easier it is for people who want to move there to raise funds because they've got a preacher on their side. He can get them in or he can keep them out of that congregation. Uh, and, so, and we need all the help we can get raising funds. So looking back through all this mission work, all this preaching, what would you say is like some of the hardest times you had or a watershed moments or things in your life that kind of really stick out to push you either to keep going or change? Or uh, This may not be the answer to your question. But probably the hardest work we've had is right here in Conifer. And I say that because the change in America. Uh, here again, I'm not bragging. My first 30, 35 years of my ministry, I baptized one person a month. Nowadays, it's hard to find people who will study, who want to know what the Bible says. And so the hardest work has been right here trying to find folks who are willing to study. Uh, it's the tone and the change in our nation and in our people. Theoretically, they don't need God, or theoretically, they got their own view of truth. They got their own way of thinking. And so the hardest work we've had has been right here uh, trying to grow. We've had 20, 25 baptisms, but, boy, they're few and far between, and it's just hard. In terms of mission work, um, like just like adversity, just, you know, something you had to overcome. I I don't know that I've ever had really any adversities. Um, If I think back over it, I might remember some. Maybe I just put it in the recesses (laughs) of my mind and I've forgotten them. I really have not had any real trouble that way. Um, It's just so different in preaching in a mission field because those places that I've gone, and they're not always this way, but the places I've gone in South Pacific and Africa, particularly Africa, they want to know. They're there to learn. If you'll teach, they'll, they'll listen. They're seeking the truth, yeah. They are. And, you know, uh, when you live in a hut and, you, and your daily whole work is just to get enough food to live, 
then you, you, you want to go somewhere it's better. We in America, we've got our eternity. We got our big houses. We got our food. We got a, that's not an appeal. One day in Africa, let me think where this was. This was in Malawi. I went and I preached not one sermon, but five hours. Uh, when I got there, people started sitting down, just a few. And before, you know, there were several hundred there. Uh, and I literally preached from like 1 o'clock until 5 or 6 o'clock in the evening. The only reason we quit, it got dark. And they would have kept listening. And uh, that's, I, I said, if a fellow's got any preach in him at all, it's going to bring it out when you have those kind of folks. <laughs> say, just keep preaching. I'm just here to listen. <laughs> See, there's, there's precedent. Hey, so. <laughs> I, I'll tell you another story that is interesting to show you how these folks want to know. Uh, this mobile Bible school that I talked, uh, talked about uh, there in Malawi, there was a lady probably in her 70s. Uh, the class that I taught where she attended was on Friday. She would leave her village on Thursday afternoon and walk five or six hours, spend the night in a village, get up and walk two or three hours and get to this class, sit there four hours while we taught, walk part of the way back Friday afternoon, spend the night in a village, and get back to her home in, on Saturday. She did that one day a week for six months uh, a, a year for four years. And she was in her probably 70s. When you have people like that, you, you, you want to teach them. You want to feed them. We would pack 100, 135, 140 folks in a building that would seat 70. And uh, I know a time or two I'd say, why don't we just go outside and sit under the tree? I don't mind teaching outside. Uh, it just, and that's part of this, as I said, through that week I would teach 750 folks. And they were just there to learn. And uh, uh, that... I, Remembering that discounts any adversity I went through. I don't know yeah. what adversity I went through, but yeah. it wasn't as bad as this. Yeah. <laughs> it was good. Yeah. So you, would you say that those times there, that just kept your fire going to want to keep yeah. preaching? Yes. Uh, and um, I think folks uh, who go on a mission trip like that will come back with a fire, a fire in their bones, as, as Jeremiah. He couldn't stop preaching. and. I think that's what we need when we see it. We don't see it in our country today. And so, uh, uh, let me think of it. Somebody I was talking with the other day, a preacher friend. Why is it people are getting out of preaching? And why is it people are, well, I think part of it is we don't see any results. Uh, if you've got any evangelistic zeal, you want to see people converted and most churches are not converting folks, and I'm not blaming the preachers or the congregation. It's our society. And, but if, you can, uh, if you've got any love for lost souls and you begin to see folks converted, that lights your fire and you want to keep doing it. And going on these short-term mission fields uh, will do that. Not all of us can be like Noah and preach for 100 years and not convert one person. <laughs> That's right. You know, <laughs> Most of the time we get discouraged and want to quit, yep. you know. Uh, we've uh, sort of our fire goes out and uh, we have to I guess adjust our thinking in terms of saying I am doing good I am feeding brethren I am helping them grow uh, but uh, we need folks who are evangelists another little side story and um, Cy Stafford went to Tanzania uh, following Andrew Conley. Andrew Conley was over there 30 years, established several congregations, but basically got down to basically two congregations, little congregations. He'd been there most all his life. So I went over there and established this preacher training school. And uh, <clears throat> from that, they've established thousands of congregations, hundreds and hundreds of preachers. And he said, the difference in what we do here and what you do in America is this. We train evangelists, you train preachers. There should be not be any difference, but there is. 
This evangelist has the heart to convert folks. The preachers are trained to uh, sit in their office, prepare their lesson, step out, deliver it, and step back in their office. Evangelists are out in the villages. These folks in these foreign countries, uh, they don't get paid to preach. They come in, they go to school, they go back. They live by having a little garden. Uh, they convert folks in their villages. Very few of them receive very little money from their own folks. But they are evangelists at heart. And I, I think Sai had a good point. Uh, we need to do what we can to instill evangelism in people, not just, I want to preach a message. And uh, we, might, uh, I, we might get back to converting more. I, I will say our society is not susceptible right now, but uh, we need to be out there trying anyway. And, you know, that all that we've been talking about here brings us to kind of the, the point of this podcast of, we want to meet you. We want to be introduced to you, but more, we want to get some advice from you. And this, our, our mission statement out of Second Timothy two two, where we, Timothy or Paul taught, charges Timothy to find these faithful men who are able to teach others also and continue this process. What advice would you give to us, as you know, vastly younger generation, <laughs> uh, yeah. to to instill that fire and that passion and that desire to want to continue this process, to find others, to teach others, and to, to keep this fire going and not let it die out? I appreciate the question. I appreciate you young people and the technology you have. That's going to be the first step in reaching a lot of people. Young folks today, before they come to your building, they're going to go to your website, and they're going to see what you are before they ever talk to you. And so I think a big part of our effort nowadays must be through technology and literally doing every way we can through social media, other forms of technology and so on. And I, I think also we, I think we have to approach it differently. We preach the same message, but I believe we have to show people we care I believe churches need to do a lot of service projects in the community. People are going to be attracted to what, they, what you do for them rather than what you can teach them. After you help them, they may be willing to listen. So I think that's one thing that I think young people need to do. Okay, we're willing to go out here and work with our hands. Uh, Conifer congregation is 25 to 30 folks. Uh, we're all older folks, but we have developed a reputation in this area that we help folks. Uh, we get calls from individuals. There's an organization up here called Mountain Resource Center that helps lots of folks, but there's some things they can't do, and they have now gotten where they call us and say, we've got this family. Could you go build a wheelchair ramp for these folks? Uh, we have built wheelchair ramps for folks. We've painted houses for folks. Uh, we have built fences for folks. We have hauled, emptied sheds and stuff like that. I'm pleased that this congregation has that reputation. We haven't converted anybody from it yet. We do have a lady, a denominational lady that we helped. It comes all the time now. Uh, we, I made calls yesterday. We've got a call to help somebody this Saturday. Uh, we've already helped him once before. He wants us to come back and help him move his stuff into a truck so he can move. I think that's one way we're going to reach, uh, find those prospects is by serving them and then them seeing they need something. Most folks have to have something that says, what I'm doing is not working. Uh, there's got to be something better. And uh, I think if we're there and they've known us and they've known what we've done, okay, I'm ready to try that. Uh, I, I don't know maybe what else to say in terms of we do need men to reach out and get other men. And, and part of this is going to be on one-on-one private situations. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, members have to talk to folks where they work and around them. And uh, maybe we have to do the same thing in terms of uh, latching on to a young person or a uh, person, individual in the congregation, 
and help them to become evangelistic, take them with studies, uh, encourage them to talk to their people, maybe teach them what to say, uh, how to say it, you know. Uh, so we've got to do that. It's a lot easier when people see results. But even though we're not seeing a lot of results, we still need the obligation of saying, uh, we, we got to be out there anyway. Yeah. And we can't be discouraged by that because it's not our... It's not our job to cause the growth. It's, it's, it's God's job. That's and exactly right. We just plant the seed, and you just throw that seed wherever we can and pray that That's you know, exactly God right, and we need work. to keep yeah. reminding ourselves of that. Um, our job is not to baptize. Our job is to teach the people. Once we teach them, you know, and I, I don't want to take a bad attitude about this, but we've had some folks here who've come. I've tried to study with them. They haven't. In the day of judgment, they cannot point the finger at us. We, we tried our best to talk with them. I haven't given up, still trying to work with them. But, uh, and I don't want that to be the wrong attitude. But still, in the day of judgment, this guy is going to look at me and say, man, I wish I had listened to you. That's sad, but Paul said that he didn't have the blood of the folks in Ephesus on his hands. And that's the attitude we have. We have to keep reaching out there, and their blood is not on our hands. Uh, if they're lost, I'm sorry. We tried our best, and you just didn't want it. Uh, and just kind of keep that in mind. Now, if we don't try, we're, we're in trouble. I like to teach the students Ezekiel 3.18, at least the principle there. When I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die, and you give him not warning or speak to warn the wicked of his wicked ways to save his life, the same wicked man will die in his iniquities, but his blood will I require at your hands. If we don't tell folks their blood's on our hands, if we tell the folks and they don't obey, their blood is not on our hands. We did our best. And so we need to keep that in the forefront of our minds that I've got to go out here and teach people. And whether they obey or not, as you said, it's really between them and God. Uh, it's sad, but that's yep. the way it is. And you can't beat yourself up over that. You no. have to just continue and have the faith that, you know, you're, you're doing what the God's, God's will. You're just, you're, you're teaching them the gospel and they can do what they want. That's right. <laughs> that's, you know, that's just the way it is. And, uh, we need to keep that in mind that, uh, our job is to teach. Yep. And don't be discouraged. And right. off of your, your life experiences, it seems like, in order to get that recharge, these these short-term missions are 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 vital for that, and I can attest to that being you know part going on those missions with you, uh, and that recharge that 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 fire gets relit. And I would encourage anybody listening to the podcast go on a short-term mission. It doesn't yeah. matter if you're going to Montreal, you're going to Mexico, you're going to South Pacific, Africa, wherever. Go on a mission trip. Go to some place that is different from your normal bubble that you're in and get that recharge uh, that you can get from that uh, mission trip for sure. And that recharge will stay with you a long time. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's not like it's just over when you get back. Uh, you still have those memories and those things. Uh, it was, it, it's good. Let me tell you one more, a little funny story. Uh, when Leo and I went to Zambia in 74, we went out to a village and preached. There was not a church there, so we preached there every night. Uh, and finally, uh, okay, came the end of the week, we're going to offer an invitation. So Leo preaches and extends this invitation. Man, about 25 or 30 folks come down front. <laughs> and in those days, people would write up into the gospel affidavit. I had a meeting and so-and-so. So I'm kidding him. You're going to write this up in the gospel advocate. Well, Ed Crookshank, who's lived over there basically 30 years, he knows about these things. So he stands up there and says, look, all you folks go back to your chairs. If you're not willing to repent, if you're not willing to give up your girlfriend on the side, if you're not willing to give up your alcohol, if you're not willing to give up all this, you're not ready to be baptized. Now, we're going to sing this invitation song, and if you're willing to make those changes, come on down and we'll baptize you. Nobody came down. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> we blew Leo's gospel advocate report. <laughs> but... But Leo, excuse me, Ed lived and knew what the people needed. If you're not going to make a change, we're not here just to baptize you. 
We're here to make changes in your life. And if you're not ready to make a change, now before it's over with, we did baptize some people in that, in that village and did start the church there. But it was, that was just kind of a funny little incident in my mind. Is I'm a younger guy preaching. At that time, I was younger, and Leo was older. And so it was just kind of fun to watch them too, you know. So, uh, but you, you, in those countries, you can easily baptize folks, but you also need to convert folks. It should be the same thing but it's not always. And so you need to do your best to try to convert them and say, okay, here's some changes that have to take yeah, place. It's a, it's a transformation that's happening. It's not, you're, you're not, not getting just wet. getting wet. Yeah, it, yeah that's it's right. It's not a one-time thing. I mean, it starts there, but it's not over. Yep. Mr. Berger, it's been so encouraging to talk to you today. This has been great. Do you have any final thoughts for us? Well, I appreciate the opportunity. I uh, feel honored to get to talk and I appreciate the work that you guys do through podcast and and other technology and uh, I would just encourage uh, I, I will put in a plug and say uh, Bear Valley Bible Institute uh, is a great place to study and if anyone is thinking about preaching and teaching I would encourage them to come uh, go through the it'll be the best two years of your life in terms of learning and the fellowship you'll make and the long-term relationships that will be established. So I'd encourage you uh, to do that. I would encourage young people, young men and women, uh, particularly preachers, uh, keep studying. I, I, I believe if you study the Bible, you won't have burnout. There's always something there new to learn. I would encourage you to read a lot. Uh, the more you read commentaries or biographies or all these things gives you more ideas and and see how it applies uh, i just finished uh, reading a book by ulysses s not by him about him ulysses s grant uh got some great insights from a president that i didn't know much about didn't have a great impression of uh and learned lots of things keep reading i think reading is valuable uh, not just the bible read other things, bulletin articles, uh, magazines, books. Uh, it keeps you fresh and keeps you with ideas and keeps you in touch with what's going on around us and some things like that. I would encourage young men to preach. It's a great life. Uh, first off, the church is doing a better job taking care of preachers today than they used to. Uh, it's rewarding. Uh, satisfaction of having accomplished something. Uh, it's just a wonderful work, and we need them. There are hundreds of pulpits out there that do not have a preacher, and we need more and more preachers. I appreciate the work that you all are doing. appreciate the encouragement you're giving to others, and I thank you for allowing me to come and speak. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.